Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I'd like to thank Amazon Pharmacy for sponsoring today's podcast. Amazon Pharmacy makes it easy to order your prescriptions and then have them delivered straight to your door. Amazon Prime members can even save on prescription medication when you're not using insurance. And you still get two-day free delivery. You can learn more at Amazon.com slash gold. Well, we finally broke a four-week winning streak in the U.S. stock indexes on Friday, although the Russell 2000 was the only index that managed a positive week. But probably the main reason for the selling was the reaction to what should have been in the markets anyway to the announcement of the higher capital gains taxes that the Biden administration is looking to include to pay for all of these new programs that are being unveiled. Now, I went over the specifics of the higher rates on the podcast that I just did. So if you haven't listened to that one, uh, make sure and listen to it. But I want to talk a little bit today, not only about the reaction in the markets, but about the Republican hypocrisy and dishonesty in their opposition to these tax hikes. So first of all, The reason that the markets are selling off is, number one, higher capital gains rates in and of itself diminishes the value of U.S. stocks, right? Because U.S. companies, the value of those businesses is the value of the income that the shareholders can derive. The income has two components. One are dividends. The other is capital gains. And in fact, a lot of companies that have earnings don't pay dividends. They use a lot of those earnings to buy back their own shares, therefore generating a higher share price. And so that return ends up being captured by the shareholder, not through a dividend, but through the ability to sell some of their shares at a higher price. 
it was the earnings of the company that enabled that higher price. Now, of course, in today's world, a lot of times companies are buying back stock, not out of earnings, but because they're issuing debt, right? They're borrowing money real cheap, and then they're using that cheap money to buy back stock. And so it's not the earnings that are driving the stock prices, it's debt. Now, of course, eventually that can come back to bite these companies if they end up having to sell stock to repay that debt, and they end up having to sell it at a much lower level. But for purposes of this discussion, I'm going to focus on the way companies return their earnings to their shareholders in the form of capital gains. Well, now if those shareholders are going to be paying higher taxes on those capital gains, and you know nobody is talking about it, but I'm pretty sure that these higher taxes are also going to apply to dividends. And so the dividend rate is going to rise because right now the qualified dividend rate is the same as the capital gains rate. Now, at one time, that wasn't the case. Before that was changed, there was a preferential treatment where companies were able to return income to their shareholders through capital gains at a more favorable rate than through dividends. And I think it was under the George Bush administration that that incentive to favor capital gains over dividends was eliminated. And remember, there's always a double taxation on that dividend income because when a corporation earns income, it pays a corporate tax. And then when it pays that dividend to the shareholder, the shareholder pays the tax again on the same income on a personal level. But when they introduced these qualified dividends, the rate on both dividend income and capital gains was equalized at 20%. It went up to 23.8% because of Obamacare. But from that perspective, shareholders face the same tax consequences of a dividend versus a capital gain. But while capital gains were favored over dividends, a lot of companies were incentivized not to pay dividends, but to instead use the income to buy back stock so that the shareholders could then sell appreciated stock at a more favorable tax rate than what they would have paid had they got a dividend. Now, what I'm sure is going to happen is they're not going to increase the tax on capital gains, but leave the dividend tax alone because that would create the opposite incentive. That would create an incentive to pay higher cash dividends and to do fewer share buybacks. Now, that might actually be a good thing to the extent that you don't like companies intervening in the market or interfering and buying back their own stock if you would rather incentivize companies to pay cash dividends and then allow their shareholders to decide if they want to buy more of that particular stock or they want to do something else with their income. But my gut feeling is that the Biden administration will increase the tax on both the dividend tax and the capital gains tax. And what that does is that reduces the present value of corporate earnings by the higher tax rate. And that means that those companies have a lower value and that would be reflected in a lower share price. In fact, it's the opposite of what happened as a consequence of the corporate tax cut. If you remember when Trump lowered the corporate tax rate down to 21% from 28%, the stock market went up because that meant that corporations now had more income to distribute to their shareholders because they sent less income in taxes. And so the stock market was celebrating this positive tax benefit with higher stock prices. 
Well, higher capital gains works the same way, only in reverse, because instead of reducing taxes on the corporate side, you're increasing taxes on the same income on the individual side, except now it's actually worse because what the Biden administration is saying that they want to do is they also want to raise the corporate tax back up to 28% from 21. So they want to take away the value that the Trump administration added to U.S. companies. And so that all by itself would be bearish for the U.S. stock market. The stock market now has to price out the benefit that got priced in when Trump was president, except the increase in capital gains and the increase in the dividend tax, the percentages are enormous, right? If you look at the percentage hike for capital gains, you're talking about for the higher income people, something like an 80% increase in capital gains. Now, it's hard to tell the exact effect for the overall market, because of course, not everybody is going to pay the higher capital gains. A lot of U.S. company stock is owned in retirement accounts, in pensions, in IRAs, right? And so these entities are not currently paying uh, any capital gains to the extent that they sell any stock. And so there's no impact there. And these higher taxes are only applying to higher income individuals. So there could be people that are having a lower income. Let's say you make $100,000 a year and then you have some capital gains. Well, these tax hikes are not going to apply to you. So to try to figure out the exact amount by which corporations are now less valuable because of higher corporate taxes, I think would be a difficult um, calculation to make. But what you know for sure is that corporations in general, U.S. corporations, will have less value as a result, A, of higher taxes on the corporate level and B, higher taxes on the individual level through higher taxes on dividends and capital gains. So all of this diminishes the income, the returns that investors can earn by purchasing U.S. stocks. And therefore, the price of those stocks, all else being equal, has to come down. Exactly by how much, it's hard to calculate but you know they have to come down. And so now stocks are finally beginning to price in the prospect of much higher corporate taxes, either at the corporate level or on the individual level. But it's actually a lot more than that because there is concern that since these higher taxes may not kick in until 2022, there may be a lot of pressure to sell stocks in 2021 while you are still able to do so with the benefit of the lower tax rate. And so to the extent that people are incentivized to realize their capital gains now, because if they wait till next year, those gains will be taxed at a much higher level, that is putting pressure on the stock market right now. Now, it's possible that these tax increases could be retroactive all the way till January 1st, And so in which case, rushing to sell your stocks now may not deliver a benefit because the tax hike will be retroactive to 2021. Now, what I'm not really sure, though, is if it is retroactive to January of this year, will it also be retroactive to the capital gains that you realized prior to the passage of the hike? Meaning, let's say they pass the higher 
capital gains tax next month. Right? Let's say they do it in June. It will certainly apply to capital gains that you realize in July, August, September, something like that. But what about the capital gains that you already realized prior to the passage of the hike? Let's say you realized capital gains earlier this year in January. Will a retroactive increase to this year still apply to the the stock you sold in January? Or would those stock sales still be at the old rate and only the sales in 2021 that happened subsequent to passing the increase be subject to the high rate. Now, if that is the case, then that also encourages people to hurry up and realize their capital gains right now rather than waiting for the bill to pass because then, right, they're grandfathered in at the old rate. Now, again, not everybody is going to feel the pressure. If you own stocks in a pension, it doesn't matter. You're not going to have to sell. But there are plenty of people who own stocks in taxable accounts who are now incentivized to sell stocks now rather than sell them later. And so that is putting downward pressure. Now, you can argue, well, people can sell stocks and immediately buy back other stocks or even the same stocks, which may be true. But I think a lot of times people have a tendency when they sell stocks to maybe sit in cash for a while. But to the extent that you have to set aside money to pay those capital gains taxes, you don't have all the money to rebuy your stock. So let's say you sell $100,000 worth of stock and now you have to set aside $24,000 to pay your capital gains tax. Well, assuming your basis was zero or, you're, or you, you realize $100,000 worth of gains by selling stocks and now you have a $24,000 federal tax liability. And by the way, you also trigger potentially a state tax liability if you're in a state that taxes income. And so maybe then it's not 24,000, but maybe it's somewhere in excess of 30,000 that you owe. Well, you can't put the entire 100,000 back into the stock market because you have to save 30,000 for Uncle Sam. So you're selling more stock than you're buying back. So the net impact of that is selling of stock. And of course, as a lot of people anticipate that other people may want to sell stocks to lock in a lower capital gains tax, driving stock prices down, well, now traders see that and they want to sell stocks too because they think other people are going to sell stocks and drive the prices down. So it starts bringing in more selling. And then, of course, you start breaking through some technical levels because you've got selling. And now people think this could be the beginning of an even bigger correction. And now you get even more selling. So that is really what's going on. And it is the opposite environment that we had when Donald Trump was first passing lower corporate taxes. That got everybody thinking, hey, this is great uh, to increase the value of U.S. stocks and not help drive the bull market. Well, maybe the fear of higher taxes could turn this into a bear market. But at a minimum, it's likely the beginning of a decent-sized correction. And that may, in fact, be the same thing that is driving the recent decline in the price of Bitcoin because Bitcoin is also subject to capital gains tax hikes. And if capital gains tax rates are going up, then those higher taxes are also going to apply to Bitcoin. And that may motivate a lot of people who are sitting on large Bitcoin profits to try to take some of those profits now while they're subject to the lower tax 
rather than maybe waiting until next year when they're subject to a higher tax. So that is bringing forward some of the selling. You know, I was watching on CNBC, Jim Cramer actually talked about this. And what he was saying is that he thought maybe people were selling their cryptos now while there were no taxes, because what he was saying is that, hey, maybe this new tax bill will apply to cryptocurrencies and maybe it will start treating Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies the same way they treat stocks. So maybe people want to sell them now while there's no tax consequences. I mean, I can't believe that Kramer, who is on television talking about how he sold some of his own Bitcoin and he used the profits to pay off his mortgage, and now he's making a big deal of the fact that he got a free house with his Bitcoin profits, doesn't he know that that's already the case? Anybody that sells Bitcoin today is subject to the same type of capital gains tax that they would get if they sold any other appreciated asset. The government right now does not treat Bitcoin as a currency. It treats it as property. And if you sell property at a higher price than you acquired the property, you are generating a taxable capital gain right now. It's amazing that Kramer doesn't know this. But where he is partially right is that that tax rate can easily go up and people could be looking to liquidate their Bitcoin now. And the reason this is having a bigger effect on the price of Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is now dropped 27% from its high. The high it put in just before, maybe the day of or the day before the Coinbase IPO. Yesterday, Bitcoin got down to about 47,500. That was approximately the low. The high was just below 65,000. So about a 27% decline so far from peak to trough. In fact, as I am recording the podcast right now, we're at 49,700. So we're holding below 50,000. When I recorded my podcast on Wednesday, we were still holding uh, 50,000. I think we're we're at 51,000 and change, but we did take out the 51,500 crash low from the prior weekend just barely. That was a support level. That support level held until I think later on the evening I did the podcast or early in the morning and then we cracked through that level and went through 50,000 down to 47,500. But I do think that the prospect of higher capital gains taxes is definitely part of the reason that you're getting this selling. But the reason it's having a bigger impact than in the stock market is because there's less liquidity here. Uh, And so if you have more selling than you normally have, that is going to have a bigger impact on a market like Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency markets than it would on a far more liquid stock market. And I think the bulk of the people who own Bitcoin own it in taxable accounts. I don't think you have nearly the same percentage of people who own Bitcoin in pensions or IRAs as you would with the stock market. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. 
Now, of course, you have people that own Bitcoin outside the United States, and so they don't have to worry about their tax treatment changing. In fact, people who own Bitcoin here in Puerto Rico, if you're a Puerto Rico and you own Bitcoin, none of this matters because you have zero capital gains, and that also applies to cryptocurrency. So there's nobody in Puerto Rico who feels motivated to sell their Bitcoin uh, now and pay the lower capital gains. But there may be some people in Puerto Rico who are technicians, who are chartists, and because other people are selling their Bitcoin now because they want to pay a lower capital gains and they're driving the price down, people who look at the technicals may be thinking, I'm selling too. It does. I don't care about the capital gains. I just don't like the technical action. It looks to me like Bitcoin can drop you know, substantially from here. So I'm just going to sell now. And the people in Puerto Rico have no reason not to sell because even if they're generating a capital gain, they're not paying a tax. There certainly could be some people who do pay taxes who don't want to sell because they don't want to pay the tax. So they just ride it out and hold But that's not the case for people in Puerto Rico and certainly other places, people living in Singapore or people living in Dubai. There are plenty of places that don't tax capital gains at all. And so people can certainly sell their Bitcoin without having to worry about taxes. Now, that probably doesn't apply to shares of GBTC, which is the uh, publicly traded Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. My guess would be there probably are quite a few people who own that in their IRA because for a long time, that's really the only way to get Bitcoin into your IRA is by buying that Grayscale Trust. That trust is actually moving down even more uh, than Bitcoin itself. In fact, the decline in the Grayscale Trust from high to low is 34%. So you have a bigger decline there than you have in Bitcoin. And that is a function of two things. One, it's a function of the premium having turned into a discount. So in addition to the loss in the NAV, you have the loss associated with the fund going from trading at a premium to trading at a discount. And in fact, this is an interesting statistic. I don't think anybody has pointed this out. The Grayscale Bitcoin Trust in 2017, when Bitcoin peaked out just below 20,000, that trust got as high as $38.71. Yesterday's low for the Bitcoin trust was $38.51. Now, it recovered off that low and actually ended up closing positive on the day, back at about 2.5%, and the discount narrowed a bit, so it closed at 42.38. But at that moment in time, when it printed 38.51, it was actually 20 cents lower than it was at its peak in 2017. Think about that, because if you go to the peak of Bitcoin in 2017 at just under 20,000, and if you look at the low of 47,500, even if you bought the high price of Bitcoin in 2017 and you sold yesterday at the exact low of Bitcoin, you still had 140% gain on your Bitcoin. But if you bought the high of GBTC and you sold yesterday's low, you actually lost money. Despite a 140% gain in Bitcoin, if you bought your Bitcoin by buying the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, you actually lost money. You know, if you dropped gold back then and bought GBTC because you wanted exposure to Bitcoin, 
you lost money. Gold is still up 40% since the end of 2017 during that time that the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is negative. So if you would have dropped your gold and bought GBTC, you actually missed out on a 40% gain in gold. Now, sure, had you dropped your gold and bought Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is up 140% since that time, and gold is only up 40%, yes, you are better off if you drop gold and you bought Bitcoin, but the commercial wasn't about dropping gold and buying Bitcoin. It was about dropping gold and buying the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And if you did that, you are worse off. Now, I think that 2017 high, that was before that ad campaign came out. So it technically doesn't apply. But I'm just rolling back time and saying if people on their own made that decision, not motivated by the Grayscale ad buy, but just decided in 2017 at the peak of Bitcoin that they on their own wanted to drop their gold and buy GBTC, they are worse off because gold's up 40% and GBTC was negative. And again, the reason for that is that back then, the Bitcoin trust traded at a huge premium to the value of its Bitcoin because it was the only way that you could get exposure through the market. And a lot of people were so enthusiastic and so desperately wanted to get into Bitcoin. And maybe they wanted it in their IRA and they couldn't just have a wallet in their IRA and buy it themselves. So they just bought GBTC. So they paid a big premium. And the people who sold it at the lows yesterday were getting out at a 16% discount. But also, you're talking about three and a half years of management fees. The trust charges 2% per year. So after three and a half years, you're talking about 7% of your money being lost to the grayscale management fee. If you just bought Bitcoin on your own and held it, you had zero costs. But if you held it for three and a half years in the grayscale trust, you lost 7% on the fees alone. And of course, those fees are continuing to compound which is why I have been very critical about that particular way of owning Bitcoin. I mean, if you're going to make the mistake of owning Bitcoin, don't make the mistake of doing it through the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Just go out and buy it yourself. Why pay somebody 2% a year to store something that can be stored for free? Now, of course, in the past, you were paying a big premium for the privilege of being overcharged to store your Bitcoin. Now that it's at a discount, well, you can make a bit of an argument for buying it now that there is a discount. But of course, I wouldn't buy it. I wouldn't buy Bitcoin either. Amazon Pharmacy makes it easy to order your prescriptions and then have them delivered straight to your door. The process is simple and saves you time and hassle. No more waiting in lines at the pharmacy. Instead, just have your doctor's office send your next prescription directly to Amazon Pharmacy, and then you'll receive it delivered right to your door. Amazon Pharmacy works with most insurance plans nationwide. Nobody likes having to go down to the pharmacy to pick up your prescriptions, especially now when everybody is so conscious about catching COVID or even anything. Because, of course, whenever you go down to the pharmacy, there's a lot of other sick people who are there who are trying to pick up their medication. And why do you want to risk catching what somebody else has? That's why it's the perfect product 
for online order and delivery because you don't have to go down to a pharmacy and expose yourself to what everybody else has who's also going to pick up their medication. And Amazon gets you your products fast and delivered right to your door so you never have to leave your house. And that's especially good for me here in Puerto Rico because Amazon Prime still applies to us Puerto Ricans and we can still get our products with expedited shipping. Amazon Prime members can save on prescription medication when not using their insurance and still get free two-day delivery. You can learn more at Amazon.com slash gold. That's Amazon, A-M-A-Z-O-N dot com slash gold. But let me get on and talk about some of the other action outside the stock market. It was a relatively quiet week in both the bond market and the precious metals market. We saw a slight drop in yields on the 10-year through the 30-year, and we saw a slight rise in the price of gold and silver. I mean, nothing to get excited about, but at least gold and silver prices weren't down. But where the real action was, was in the U.S. dollar, because I think the negative action is significant. The dollar index was down about a half a percent on Friday. That was a pretty big move on no real news Uh, that would necessarily be dollar negative. In fact, there was some economic news uh, that was generally received as being positive for the U.S. economy. Yet despite that, the U.S. dollar index was down. In fact, on a weekly basis, it was the lowest close in 10 weeks. We closed below the 91 handle at 90.83. And I've been pointing out on the podcast that I thought the technical picture for the dollar looked weak and that the dollar index had already put in its high and it looks more and more like that forecast is going to end up being accurate and I think we're going to be breaking below 90 relatively soon. The lowest we've been all year was 89 and change so we've never had an 88 handle during this particular decline in the dollar. But I think that is coming. And I think once the dollar really starts to break down, that's when the price of gold is really going to break out. And remember, both the dollar has been supported and the gold price has been suppressed by interest rates, by the idea that higher interest rates are going to help the dollar and hurt gold. And my position is that that's not true that the increase that we're seeing in interest rates is only nominal. That in real terms, when you adjust interest rates for inflation, rates are falling. And falling real interest rates are bearish for the dollar and bullish for gold. And so I think the markets are going to start to understand this distinction and then they can shrug off what they're seeing with nominal rates and buy gold and sell the dollar even as uh, U.S. Treasury yields are moving higher. And of course, as U.S. Treasury yields move higher, the Federal Reserve is under increasing pressure to stop that from happening by printing even more money, which is even more bearish for the dollar by adding to the supply and even more bullish on gold by creating more inflation. And of course, all of the effects of inflation continued to be ignored, continued to be dismissed as if they were transitory. But these numbers are getting worse and worse and worse. Look at what's going on with used car prices. I talked about used car prices on a prior uh, podcast, but here I was just reading in an article on Zero Hedge that in the last 15 days, 
used car prices are up another 6.8%. And if you go back year over year, it's 52% rise in used car prices. 52%. Why is this happening? Well, one of the main reasons is because there's not enough new cars for people to buy. And so there's more demand for the used cars that are already here. I mean, the same thing is happening in the housing market too, because it's hard to construct new houses. It's more expensive. It's taking longer. So that is increasing the market value of the houses that are already here. Well, the same thing is happening in automobiles. And why are U.S. manufacturers not making as many cars? There's shortages of parts. A lot of it has to do with the chips uh, that are in the cars because the cars now have all sorts of uh, you know computerized functions in there that require these chips. But it's not just that. I mean, it's everywhere, right? Look at, I ordered a golf cart here in Puerto Rico two, three months ago. And I was originally told it would be four to six weeks to get this golf cart because they have to bring it in uh, on on a ship. I mean, they don't keep any inventory here uh, of golf carts. And again, I, I think I mentioned this once before on the podcast, but this again is how government's policy can influence behavior. So the geniuses in San Juan decided that they were gonna tax inventories at the end of the year. So whatever unsold inventory a company has, you know, on its books, it has to pay a tax. Well, companies don't like paying taxes. Well, if there's a tax on inventory, how do you avoid the inventory tax? Avoid having inventory. So no Puerto Rican businesses keep any real inventory. Just think about that for a moment. The Puerto Rican government wants to raise some revenue. Businesses have a bunch of inventory and they're like, okay, great, let's put an inventory tax. So they levy the tax on inventory. Now Puerto Rican businesses who don't want to pay the inventory tax decide to liquidate their inventory and not have any. So now you have a tax on inventory, but the government doesn't actually raise any revenue from the tax because the inventory they wanted to tax no longer exists. So you've got this tax on the books that's not generating any revenue. So why isn't it repealed? It's not because politicians never admit their mistakes and they never want to evaluate the unintended consequences of their actions. You pass a tax, people change their behavior to avoid the tax. Just like when you're giving out a subsidy, people will go out of their way to qualify for the subsidy. So subsidies always cost more than politicians anticipate and taxes always raise less than politicians anticipate because people try to avoid the tax just like they try to qualify for the subsidy. Meanwhile, the tax is creating problems in Puerto Rico because now Puerto Ricans, instead of being able to go to a store and buy something, they have to go to a store and order something, and now they have to wait for it to get here. And in fact, in many cases, if you're going to have to wait a long time to get a product, you might as well just buy it online. I mean, one of the beauties of actually going to a brick and mortar store is that you can actually go there, see the merchandise and come home with it. But you can't do that a lot in Puerto Rico because of the inventory tax. The businesses are going to wait for you to buy it before they actually order it. So you might as well just shop online. So it creates an even added incentive 
for Puerto Ricans to shop online instead of shopping in these local businesses, which ends up costing Puerto Rico even more tax revenue. So this tax has done nothing but damage. It raises no revenue, but makes it a lot less convenient for Puerto Ricans to shop and, of course, raises the cost of a lot of the merchandise because one of the reasons to keep a lot of inventory is because you have lower cost, especially in an inflationary environment where prices are going up. At least if you have some inventory locked up, you may not have to pass on the price hikes as quickly as if you have to special order every single product that your customers are buying. So the golf card companies, they don't want to buy a bunch of golf carts and just have them in a lot and then get stuck having to pay a tax. So every golf cart is basically special ordered, right? First they get the money and then once you buy the golf cart, well, they'll go ahead and order it. So that makes it a lot harder to buy the carts because you just can't buy one. You have to wait for it to come. Now, under normal circumstances, maybe the wait is four to six weeks. Well, I've been waiting for well over two months and I still don't have the golf cart. And so I called up the company. I said, hey, you know, can I get an update on the status of the delivery of my golf cart? Because I'm going to be leaving Puerto Rico uh, in about a month. And they said, well, we won't even know if we can get it on a container uh, until after then. And the reason that they can't even ship it now, assuming they can get a container that they can load it up in, is they said that the manufacturer can't finish building the cart because he doesn't have all the parts. So they're still waiting for the parts to come in so they can finish building the cart before they can even try to find a container to load it on and send it into Puerto Rico. So the question is, when am I actually going to receive this golf cart that I bought? It doesn't sound like it's gonna happen for many, many months. So maybe it could be taking four to six months, if that, for me to get this golf cart. And it's not just golf carts. I mean, I talk to people here in Puerto Rico and I hear similar anecdotes because people email me because a lot of people are doing work on their homes. They buy houses and they're doing construction projects. And a lot of these projects are being delayed because of how long it takes for you to get your parts or the material that you need. Because again, it all has to be imported. It all has to be loaded up on ships. Hard to get the ships, but it's also hard to get the parts. This is going on throughout the entire economy. Now, obviously, if there's such a back order, there's such a delay in getting stuff, prices are going to go way up. I mean, you would imagine that before you get the big price hikes, you get the delays. Right? The delays are basically telling you that there's not enough stuff. And if we don't have enough stuff, what's going to happen to the price? The price is going to go up. In fact, there are a lot of companies. I'm reading you know, Procter & Gamble or Coca-Cola or all these big companies. They've all announced that they're going to have to be raising prices, but none of those price hikes have actually been implemented. They're all saying, oh, we're going to raise prices, but it's going to be in three months or whenever they're, you know, for some reason they're, they're, they're telegraphing their intention to raise prices well in advance. Now, in some cases, they're saying it's going to be a combination. We're going to shrink the packages. We're going to increase the prices. We're going to do things, but we have to offset the rising raw material costs. So, these higher prices that have been announced, they're not part of the CPI numbers that we already have because announced hikes aren't in the CPI. They don't get into the CPI until the hikes are actually made. But if you look at all these announced price hikes that haven't happened, you look at these massive delays that are obviously going to lead to much, much higher prices, especially if people need the product sooner and the only way they maybe can get it sooner would be to find a different way of 
bringing it over here or a more expensive way, it's clear that prices are going much, much higher than people think. So the actual degree to which interest rates in real terms are falling is going to accelerate as these price increases really start working their way through the system. And of course, the Fed is not going to do anything about it because they can't do anything about it. You know, and while I'm talking about these uh, delays, I want to talk again about what's going on with the Perth Mint because I am getting hammered online for my association with the Perth Mint and recommending unallocated uh, silver or gold at the Perth Mint. And I've already addressed this in a previous podcast, but I was reading some stuff online and it keeps saying that Peter Schiff refuses to address the Perth Mint issue. I didn't refuse to address it. I addressed it. These critics refuse to acknowledge the fact that I addressed it. Now, I think one article I was reading, hey, I listened to Peter Schiff's podcast and he said nothing about the Perth Mint. Well, I'm not addressing the Perth Mint controversy on every single podcast. I addressed it once. So if you didn't listen to that podcast, then you didn't get my explanation. But to simply say that, hey, I didn't explain it on a particular podcast, I'm not going to talk about the Perth Mint every time I do a podcast. But I'm going to do it again on this particular podcast. So if any of these critics are saying, hey, I'm refusing to address this controversy, I'm not. And it really isn't a controversy. It's a conspiracy theory that is wrong, right? People are making a big deal out of the fact that some people who have unallocated silver at the Perth Mint, when they're trying to have their silver fabricated and delivered, that the Perth Mint is saying, you're going to have to wait a long time to get it. There's going to be a delay in the fabrication and the shipment process. And now all of a sudden, this is a big deal. This is not a big deal. This is happening all over the place. As I just said, I want my golf cart and the golf cart company is telling me, well, yeah, you can get it, but you're going to have a big delay much longer than would normally have. And the same thing applies. And I said this on that last podcast to shift gold, right? If you want to buy physical silver right now at shift gold, pay for it and have it delivered, you're going to wait a lot longer to get that silver than you would have waited before COVID. Every business is having the same issue where you don't have the product, you don't have the inventory. And so customers have to wait. And so the fact that they're waiting to get their silver, well, that's no different. And you have to remember, when you have unallocated silver, you receive a huge savings to have unallocated silver. Look, everybody that works with the Perth Mint has a choice, right? You can have unallocated or you can have allocated, right? It's up to the customer. But if you want allocated, they will take particular silver and put it in a deposit box with your name on it. And they will hold the silver in however you want it. They'll hold it in bars. They'll hold it in coins. It's right there. And yes, if you want that silver, it's a lot easier to get because it's already there waiting for you. But you have two things that you have to cover. The cost of fabricating the silver and the cost of storing it. If you just go for unallocated, you avoid both. And if you think about it, right, let's say somebody wants to buy $100,000 worth of silver. If you want it in coins, you're not going to get $100,000 worth of spot silver 
because there is a cost to produce the coins or the bars. And so you're going to have to pay that cost. So let's just say for argument's sake that you only have $95,000 worth of silver and $5,000 went to cover the cost of making your one ounce silver coins or whatever. So you, you spent $100,000, you got $95,000 worth of silver were you to melt down those coins. Well, if you just buy unallocated silver and you could just say, hey, I want $100,000 worth, don't bother to make me some coins, now your entire $100,000 goes into silver. Now, if at some point in the future, you just decide to sell the silver for cash, well, you got to make a greater profit because you didn't actually need the coins. If you don't actually take them into your possession, if they're being stored by a third party, well, why pay for something that you don't need? So just buy the silver and maximize the money that goes into silver. Oh, and because you do that, they're not gonna charge you storage. Now, why are they giving you this for free? Because they're using your silver to make coins and bars for other people. But the silver is always there at the Perth Mint, right? They get a bunch of silver, delivered to them and now they have orders for uh coins and bars so they take some of your silver and they make coins and bars now so that when they get new silver in they can deliver that silver it, it basically helps them manage their inventory process they get free use of your silver in exchange you get free storage at their facility but they are audited and so they have to have the silver on premises at all times you know, so it's not fractional reserve. There's nothing funky going on there. I have been working with the Perth Mint for almost 20 years. And I've never had a single issue where a customer who had unallocated silver was not able to sell their silver and get their cash or have their silver fabricated and delivered out to them. Now, I tell people, if you, if you think you're gonna want the silver delivered, don't even use the Perth Mint. Just go to Shift Gold and buy the silver and have it delivered right now. The Perth Mint is ideal for people who don't want the silver in their own possession. And I recommend, and I've done this from the beginning, people need to diversify where they have their precious metals. You should 100% have some precious metals physically with you in your own self-custody. Right? And that's where shift gold comes in, right? They'll ship you the gold and now you can custody it yourself and the silver. But depending on how much you're going to keep in silver, if you're keeping hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars in silver, you don't want all that silver in your basement. You got to have other places to store it. And so the Perth Mint is one of those places where you can keep the silver that you're not going to store yourself. Now, there are other places you can keep it. You can diversify, but there's no reason not to include the Perth Mint as part of that diversification. They are a very reputable institution in Australia. There's all sorts of safeguards, and it is a good program because silver, unlike gold, is bulky and expensive to store. If they give you a free way to store silver that you never intended to take possession of, that's a good idea. But if at some point in the future, you decide that you actually want that silver, well, now you've got to pay the cost of fabricating it. But if you decide that you want it in a pandemic when there's a big backlog and now you have to wait several months longer than normal to get it, well, that's part of the cost of all the benefit that you earned over the years of not being charged for storage 
or not having to fabricate the coin sooner. But to somehow make out that this is a conspiracy, that they don't even have the silver, that somehow I'm defrauding people, I'm part of the fraud by scamming people into buying the Perth Mint. Again, I've been doing it for 20 years. Now, in case some people don't understand the relationship, but Euro-Pacific Capital, which was my broker-dealer, was a authorized distributor of the Perth Mint. So we were able to sell the Perth Mint certificates uh, in the U.S. or around the world and introduce people through the Perth Mint. Now, I sold my broker-dealer a few years ago in conjunction with my move to Puerto Rico. So I no longer own what used to be Euro-Pacific Capital. The new name of that company is Alliance Global Partners. Now, Alliance Global Partners has a division of reps that used to work for Euro-Pacific Capital. They now work for Alliance Global Partners, but they are in a division that retained the name Euro-Pacific Capital. But it's no longer Euro-Pacific Capital, Inc. It's just Euro-Pacific Capital. That's why it reads on the website, Euro-Pacific Capital, a division of Alliance Global Partners. That is the new name of the BD that I used to own, but which I sold. Now, what I do with Alliance Global Partners is my strategies get implemented through the Euro-Pacific Capital Division. I act as the uh, chief economist and global strategist for that division. And that division uh, utilizes my mutual funds and they offer separately managed accounts, which are managed by my company in Puerto Rico, Euro-Pacific Asset Management, through a sub-advisory agreement with AGP. So Alliance Global Partners now is the authorized dealer for the Perth Mint, right? So when I sold the broker-dealer, I also sold the authorized dealership from Euro-Pacific Capital to what is now Alliance Global Partners. So even though I don't own it, and so I am no longer an authorized dealer directly, I am still promoting it. And I'm promoting it because we've had no problems. I still think that the Perth Mint is a good way to have some of your silver and gold. And I I have silver and gold there myself, mostly silver. But I have my own metals on deposit at the Perth Mint. And I'm not concerned at all that the metals aren't there. I'm not concerned at all that I won't be able to get them. But that doesn't mean I'm telling people, if you look at some of these critics, hey, Peter just wants people to buy at the Perth Mint. No, I don't. I got shift gold. I'm constantly promoting shift gold. How often am I telling people to have physical gold and silver in their possession? I'm doing that all the time. So I'm not trying to discourage people from actually taking possession of gold and silver. I am encouraging people to do that. But I am also encouraging people to diversify and have some of your gold and silver outside of the country. One particular reason for that is what if you have to flee, right? What if things get so bad in America that you have to get out? And what if it's illegal to take your gold and silver out of the country? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to leave with nothing, knowing that you have some gold and silver stored outside of the country? So once you leave the United States or escape, whatever it is, you can then go and get your gold and silver from that storage facility and not be broke. Even though you left with nothing, you're able to get the gold and silver that you have stored outside the country. I want to finish up the podcast, though, by circling back to the higher capital gains taxes that are one of the reasons that you're seeing a sell-off in the stock market and in the cryptocurrency market 
is the way the Republicans have been reacting to these higher taxes, because pretty much all the Republicans are united in their opposition to higher taxes, right? They don't want higher corporate taxes. They say it'll be a negative for the economy, that it's going to hurt jobs. It's going to lead to less investment. People are going to be less inclined to take risks because now the returns associated uh, with the gains on those risks are going to be diminished by higher taxes. And so it's not just the wealthy who are going to be affected by higher capital gains taxes. It's the people who don't get hired because businesses don't get started or businesses can't expand because it's harder for them to get capital. And of course, by definition, if there are people who are funding businesses, if whenever they cash out of one business to free up money to invest in another, if they have to diminish their pool of capital by sending money to the government every time they realize a gain, that means they have less capital available to fund the next project. And so even if they're not deterred from making capital investments by the higher taxes, the higher taxes in and of themselves depletes them of the resources that otherwise would have been available to fund investments. And so that is going to have an impact, a negative impact on the economy. So I do not have issues with any of the criticisms that the Republicans have about higher taxes and why they're a mistake. I completely agree. But where I take issue with the Republicans is the fact that they supported the stimulus spending that made the deficits even larger. And so you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be in favor of bigger government, right? You can't be in favor of making government more expensive because you now have more spending and more programs. You can't favor that but then be against the higher taxes necessary to pay for government. Yes, higher taxes are going to hurt the economy. But if you're going to have government spending the money, then those higher taxes are necessary. So if you want bigger government, you have to hurt the economy, which is why Republicans need to be against bigger government. So if you don't want higher taxes, you have to make sure that the government doesn't spend more money Because that's what necessitates the higher taxes. So you're a complete hypocrite if you're, on the one hand, opposing these tax hikes, but then you supported increases in spending. In fact, if you are a Republican right now and you are not saying that we need to cut government spending, but you are opposing these tax hikes and saying we shouldn't raise taxes and you're opposing the taxes, you are a hypocrite. What you need to be saying to not be a hypocrite is you must be advocating government spending cuts to balance the budget because for all the damage that taxes do to the economy, the deficits that you have when you don't have the taxes do even more damage. That's what these Republicans don't understand. The damage is being done by the spending not by the taxing. So once the government has decided to spend money and it spends that money, that is what's damaging the economy. Now, once you've already conceded that we're going to have some damage to the economy, well, now how do you cover the cost? Direct taxes is just one way of doing it. But running deficits where the government has to borrow money that might otherwise have been used to grow the economy or the Federal Reserve prints money, which basically is an inflation tax and diminishes the real 
money in the economy to finance capital investment and job creation and all that. That damage is being done. And I would argue that paying for government spending with debt and inflation exacts a greater burden on the economy than raising the capital gains tax. So if you are not advocating for cuts to government spending, then you should support higher taxes. Even if you don't like the taxes, the taxes are a necessary evil to finance the spending that you support it. And if you're not trying to cut spending, well, then you need higher taxes. Now, if the Republicans were advancing legislation to slash government spending, then I might think differently about it. But they're not even doing that. They're simply drawing a line in the sand when it comes to taxes. Oh, yes, we oppose any increase in taxes. But then they sign on. Oh, yes, we want an infrastructure bill. We just we want a smaller infrastructure bill. Uh, but they don't want to raise taxes. I mean, some of them say we should raise the gas tax, and at least that is acceptable. Yes, if we're going to invest in roads and bridges, well, we can raise the gas tax because the people who are traveling on the roads and bridges and who are going to benefit from the, the improved infrastructure, well, they should pay for it with, with higher taxes. But that is still going to leave a huge deficit, and the deficit has to be closed. Now, what the Republicans could be saying is, look, we don't like higher capital gains taxes. We would rather have a higher sales tax. Maybe we should have a national value added tax, although I'd hate to open that can of worms. But what Republicans have to be proposing if they don't like increases in capital gains taxes is what taxes do you want to increase to pay for all the government spending that you support? And if you don't want to increase any taxes, then what government programs do you want to eliminate? Where do you want to cut spending so that we don't have to raise these taxes? To simply say you're opposed to tax hikes, but in favor of all this spending, that is what makes me so mad. And that is what actually undercuts any legitimate efforts that Republicans may have. Because while they are opposing even a feigned attempt to pay for government, they were all in favor of the programs that made government more expensive and necessitated the higher taxes to at least cover part of the cost. (music) 